Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 95, The New State. In the backdrop of revolution, civil war, and famine, the Bolsheviks were tasked forging a new type of government from the wreckage of the impossibly dysfunctional Tsarist Empire. There might have been a silver lining in all the chaos in that they weren't expected to bring the whole of the nation in line all at once, due to the simple fact that they didn't control the whole of it. Not that you could expect anyone on the ground back then to actually appreciate that, and for good reason. The feeling of being surrounded on all sides was at the forefront of Bolshevik decision-making. All the times they pressed their own attacks too far too fast were a result of conditions within their home base. They were under siege, and Lenin grasped at any opportunity to put an end to that. Decisive wins were needed not just to stop the attacks, but to allow the state to redirect its attentions to trying to, you know, build a nation. That, of course, didn't happen, because nothing worth doing is ever easy, and the Bolshevik government spent its first several years in panic mode, trying to escape the prison built first by Brest-Litovsk and then by Entente aid and intervention. But what they did control was, at very least, a coherent unit. The core of the Russian Empire that was in Red Hands consisted of 30-odd provinces that contained a strong Russian majority, about three-quarters in all. This meant that there weren't far-flung separatist movements or local factions vying to break away at a moment's notice, a problem very much faced by the Whites. The Bolshevik government would name it the Russian Soviet Republic, then the Russian Socialist Federative Soviet Republic, or the RSFSR for short, although their opponents would sneeringly call it Soldepia. The Bolsheviks in the aftermath of the October Revolution had done a good job of overthrowing the provisional government and the old order it had taken over from. I've gone over in past episodes how the Bolsheviks would take to the rails and establish local Soviets as the controlling power in cities, with themselves in charge of the Soviets. This was kind of the bedrock of Bolshevik support, as, remember, they at best commanded the loyalty of about a quarter of the country in late 1917, with the SRs being considerably larger. Despite being a minority party, they held on to power, and they used that power to push Lenin's slogan of all power to the Soviets. That may have been more than a little cynical, given that the Soviets were supposed to be democratic in principle among the proletariat, and the Bolsheviks very much did everything they could to bring the Soviets to heel. But the majority of the proletariat didn't concern themselves with the politics of who ran what committee. They supported the promise of the Soviets to push their interests, and ergo supported the group that most loudly championed the Soviets themselves. The biggest rivals of the Bolsheviks on the left, the right SRs and the Mensheviks, didn't do that. The rivals further to the right didn't even entertain the idea. So if you spent last episode wondering just why in the hell the population of Red Russia went along with the Bolsheviks in the face of war and societal collapse, it's because Lenin promised that they were fighting on their behalf. Not for the hollow glory of an aristocracy or to protect the profits of business interests, nor something as vague as a proposed liberal democracy. The Red Army fought to advance the rights and material conditions of the working class. And that was something the population, by and large, were willing to support and sacrifice for. To be sure, they didn't starve with a smile, and as I'm about to cover, there were waves of strikes and even a couple uprisings, but nothing that threatened the state with destruction. It's worth remembering the example of the left SR uprising in summer 1918. Things were already bad at that point, and still there wasn't an outpouring of support to rein the Bolsheviks in. Even in the dark days of 1919 and 1920 at home, when conditions were at their worst, 
they still largely just soldiered on. When common people were asked if they were Bolsheviks, most would dismiss the idea and claim they still identified as a more moderate brand of leftist. But when the question was followed up with, should there be a change in government, they would dismiss that idea too. They might not have seen eye to eye with Lenin, but he was delivering on the actual promise of change, and at least paid lip service to their well-being. And while they suffered, the suffering had more of a point under the RSFSR than it did under the Tsar or the provisional government. That all being said, the workers were not a monolithic block of people who marched in lockstep, nor did they have the benefit of hindsight as to where the revolution was going. Their worldview as of early 1918 was still dominated by the years of militancy that had built up over the course of World War I and continued even after the Bolshevik government came to power. As I discussed last episode, the main order of business was in maintaining the Red Army and simply securing sufficient food supplies. That nasty business was carried out through ad hoc measures that demonstrated more desperation than control. That desperation sprung from the crisis hitting the cities, prompting the Bolsheviks to take such extreme measures to secure food. But it wasn't the only set of measures they took to address the plight of the cities. At stake was not just the basis of the Bolsheviks' support, but also the dwindling industrial base they depended on to fight their war of survival. I've spoken before how the trade unions and factory committees largely took control of their places of work, either after the owners fled proactively, or after the workers made it clear that they should really leave. And once in command, those workers' groups were recognized by the new state as the management of whatever operation they so happened to work in. That didn't automatically make the worker groups buddy-buddy with the government. Far from it. The groups immediately gave themselves big pay raises, which, given the inflation of the day, was totally reasonable. The purchasing power of the workers had been almost wiped out over the last four years. But the paychecks had to first be covered by the proceeds coming from the factory's output, and if that was insufficient, then the government had to intervene and cover the rest. In a capitalist market, the factory would simply close, but the government, one, couldn't let perfectly good factories sit idle, and two, couldn't let their base lose their jobs. This contributed to the further spiral of inflation that just made the initial problem of purchasing power even worse. And just as a little aside, the years of inflation would, by the peak of the Civil War, render the money economy completely irrelevant. The old-fashioned payment in kind made a comeback, which some Bolsheviks tried to spin as a good thing, as defeating the money economy was an important step to dismantling capitalism. The left Bolsheviks cheered on the inflation gripping the country, and they were one group that got exactly what they wanted. I've described inflation a lot over the course of this show, but a fun anecdote specific to Russia was that by 1920, simply importing the paper and dyes in which to print the currency stopped being cost-effective, meaning it cost more to print the paper money than what the materials were actually worth. Which, you know, I'd like to think I'm a glass-half-full kind of guy too, but the circumstances at the time really couldn't be construed as anything other than disastrous. But yeah, the workers. The first half of 1918 was probably the most disastrous for the Bolsheviks in their relations with the workers. That was when the revolution was still young, and the prospect of a white counter-revolution hadn't quite hit home just yet, and the unpopular surrender to the Germans was still fresh in the mind. Because the Bolsheviks couldn't initially cajole any grain out of the peasants and hadn't yet launched its grain campaigns in the countryside, a lot of the workers got disillusioned. 
Some of them became despondent enough that they just gave up and dropped out of political affairs, focusing on just surviving. Others, though, turned towards making new organizations to press their case to their government and maybe get them to intervene and quickly improve their material circumstances. This coalesced into the extraordinary assemblies of factory and plant representatives in March 1918. By June, this protest group had hundreds of thousands of members and was challenging Bolshevik power in the Soviets. A little thing worth pointing out, they weren't looking to go toe-to-toe with the Bolsheviks. Merely, they were looking to get enough support that their platform had to be addressed. Their grievances weren't even specifically against the government either, but rather focused on things that the government could be doing for them. Namely, get the economy sorted out to where they could work normally and have access to food. They also called out how the Soviets had become far more restrictive bodies under Bolshevik leadership, and expressed a desire for more openness in them. This was not a leadership challenge. They weren't looking for Lenin or the others to step down. They just weren't seeing any action at the street level to help them. And of course, their grievances were valid ones. It's just that the government didn't have the capability to address it at that moment. The state apparatus was still undeveloped, and central organizing towards a common goal consisted mostly of directives being issued from Moscow and then hoping that local authorities could actually execute them. Some episodes back, I talked about how Stalin was sent down to Tsaritsyn during the 1919 battles there, trying to scrounge up some grain. The reason such a high-level leader was going down there doing a job like that was simply because sending an order for the grain was insufficient. Troubleshooters oftentimes had to be sent out to take control of local situations. There simply weren't enough authority figures high up in the party to do that all over the country, though, and could only be applied for urgent scenarios. Normally, the local government, either through the party branch or the Soviet, would manage their affairs on their own with little coordination between regions, which itself was an understandable byproduct of communications and transport being hopelessly dislocated. This meant that the big idea solutions that communist governments are known for simply were not on the table. And it meant that for the duration of the Civil War, it was going to be ad hoc measures that were to address whatever crisis was happening that day. And to bring this whole rambling bit back to the workers, it meant that the government simply didn't have the capacity for large-scale reforms to address their issues. Try explaining that to the workers, though. They were interested in their own conditions— not the excuses of a government trying to sort itself out. By April 1918, Lenin himself had grasped the danger of the extraordinary assemblies getting out of hand and began to join the camp in the party that was advocating taking over direct control of factory operations from the unions and committees. While the Civil War was confined at the time to the Kuban region of southern Russia and not yet the life-or-death struggle it would become, the state of Russian industry was already dire. If it was to be the linchpin of establishing the economy of the new state, it would need to operate at peak efficiency. And to the minds of the high-up Bolshevik leaders, this meant direct control of the industrial sector. The All-Russian Council for the Economy was the body established that steadily assumed control of factory management. Where the unions had held sway for a little over six months, now there were appointed government managers to bring discipline back to the factory floors. This was roundly criticized, even in many circles of the party itself, as a betrayal. But the cold-blooded calculus was there. The economy had to be reset, and every factory kind of doing its own thing according to its own rules really wasn't going to cut it. There was also a matter of timing to consider. 
The new policy was declared on June 28th, days before a general strike organized by the Extraordinary Assemblies was set to begin in Petrograd, and two months after sporadic strikes and protests in the same area that had been provoked by the Cheka firing into a crowd of protesters further back in early May. And while talk about assuming command of industries had been going on from the start of the revolution, by summer 1918, the Komuch government was threatening the Volga, and worker unrest even outside Petrograd was considered to have been getting critical. Once again, it was a decision made only after the pressures of crisis had forced the government's hand. The decree affected both relations with the workers and the overall political situation. The party assumed command of the factories, and ergo, who actually got to have a job? This quickly brought the workers to heel, while the leadership of the extraordinary assemblies, mostly Menshevik and SR men, were arrested. The assemblies themselves were shot down, the moderate socialists tossed out of the Soviets entirely, and even their newspapers across Red Russia were shut down. The moderate socialists were effectively driven underground with the move. Their own bases of political power were among the workers and on the factory floor. More so than even being banned in the Soviets, if they couldn't reach the workers in the factories, their movements were doomed. The new policy on industry also went into effect only a little over a week before the left SR uprising in Moscow, which as you all know went terribly as the left SRs declined to mount a leadership challenge. Within a month of nationalizing industry, the Bolsheviks had secured an uncontested monopoly on political power in Russia's core. This monopoly allowed for a consolidation to occur at the level of provincial and local governance as well. I talked about in earlier episodes how there was usually a power contest between the local Soviets, the Bolshevik party itself, and the Cheka. Well, from that point onwards, it became less imperative to focus on controlling the Soviets, as opposition leaders were gone and the workers were being managed by appointees from Moscow. The party came to supersede the Soviets in importance, which meant that the ambitious flocked to its banner. This represented quite the turnaround, as before, the Bolshevik party's local branches were usually in their infancy and weren't built up, compared to the more established Soviets. Not anymore, though. In fact, enthusiasm to join the Bolshevik party became kind of a problem, as 1.4 million people flooded its ranks between 1917 and 1920. This was kind of an understandable occurrence, as the party rising to prominence and people wanted to get in while the getting was good, and everybody loves to be part of the winning team. There were also those who wanted to elevate themselves socially, and huge numbers came from a lower class background, which was good as the party's goal was to elevate the proletariat, but presented a challenge as if the party was to be the center of political life and a mechanism to spread the revolutionary message, then having masses of people unschooled in the party's ideology, well, that presented a challenge. It was a boon, though, in that suddenly what had been an organization staffed almost entirely by the intelligentsia now had a much more populist touch, as they, you know, had normal people as members. It presented a nice little counterpoint to the whites, who went in the exact opposite direction and promised to restore the social pecking order. In addition, there were new recruits coming from the moderate socialist parties who no longer had access to influence, and sometimes even non-socialists further to the right. I like Trotsky's description of them as radishes, red on the outside, white on the inside. Whatever their potential loyalties or qualifications, the flood of recruits was simply too great to screen them all, so in practice, it didn't make a huge difference, and most everybody who wanted to got in. 
Plus, the expansion of the party was needed to make it the apparatus through which the government would exert its control over the nation. This got underway in earnest in spring 1919 at the height of the Civil War. The pressures of the whites and the Entente from the north, south, and east burdened the Soviets to the breaking point. Turns out that local councils and committees set up and managed with only sporadic input from Moscow weren't contributing quite what they needed for the war effort. With the success of industry being brought under the state's umbrella, it was now time for local management to be centralized too. Starting in March 1919, following its 8th Party Congress, the Bolshevik Party's national apparatus in Moscow was vastly expanded. The Central Committee was quintupled, numerous bureaus were formed to devise government policy, and the Org Bureau was established to manage party appointments nationwide. To control this expanded party, a five-man political bureau, or as we know it better, the Politburo, was established. It consisted initially of Lenin, Trotsky, Stalin, Kamenev, and a guy I haven't talked about named Krestinsky, but its membership would change from time to time. The New Look Party now made policy from the top, and when its orders were handed down, it was expected that the local branches and the local Soviets they controlled to implement those orders on the spot. Failure to do so was a quick ticket to being sacked and replaced. Local openings that were usually filled by party bosses on the scene were now taken care of from Moscow. This absolutely positively had the desired effect of putting the party basically in control of local government and to place the party as a whole firmly under the control of the leadership in Moscow. It did have two drawbacks, though, or at least complaints. One was that the appointed party bosses were oftentimes from outside the area they were being put in charge of which meant that he didn't know the lay of the land as well. Also, he wouldn't have any special affection for the concerns of the people in the area, which doesn't usually endear a populace to their officials. The second thing was that the appearance of appointees from Moscow and the new orders from above kind of killed the enthusiasm for some in participating in the party. Before, the determined could push change on a smaller scale through the party branches, and that was less likely to happen with bosses who only aimed to please Moscow. For the ambitious, it was now harder to rise through the ranks without having somebody at your back in the capital, so they were frustrated too. The expansion of the central government also meant that a bureaucracy had to be built up as well, and that meant finding qualified office drones to staff it, and that meant needing to find educated drones. And that created the slightly awkward outcome of bringing in the bureaucrats of the old regime. The new commissariats and departments wound up with over 50% of their staffs coming from background in public service before the October Revolution. And on top of that, more positions were filled by members of what had been the bourgeois, people who were educated but suddenly had to find real jobs. Then there were also the petty bourgeois, who probably knew a trade, but due to a collapsed economy were forced to turn to government work. Their lot wasn't terrific either, as they had to trudge from the residential areas to Moscow's center through the classic examples of bad Russian weather to work in unheated offices covered in their wet winter clothes. Despite the drawbacks, they still had access to better food allotments than most anyone else outside the highest red echelons, and suffered less than their blue-collar counterparts, which made their positions desirable ones. It also bound those who might have been enemies of the regime, and also stemmed somewhat the brain drain that was afflicting the nation. Those were kind of scanty silver linings, though, as the officialdom was looked at by the proletariat as a betrayal of the revolutionary promise. 
The officials were seen as high-handed and apart from the normal people, enjoying material privileges denied to them. The state apparatus also became painfully visible. I talked in episodes past how the Tsar's autocracy was unsustainable because the government was painfully underdeveloped and lacked reach out in the provinces. Lenin's new government didn't have that problem, and by the start of the 20s was ten times as large as the Tsar's had been, which was great to expand the state's influence, but it also set the populace on edge as to the level of control that was being imposed on them versus the scanty material benefits they were getting out of the deal. This was going to have consequences as the Civil War wound down, but I'll get to that in a future episode. The expanded powers of party and state had the desired effect, though, and the outlying areas outside Moscow became far more responsive to the government's orders. It wasn't an overnight thing, and the days of true central dictatorship would have to come later, but it was a start in that direction. Okay. So far up to this point, the Bolsheviks had solidified their power first by knocking down the upper classes by opening them to confiscations from the proletariat, political opponents through crackdowns and isolation, the peasantry by militarizing the food supply, the workers themselves by a nationalization of the industries, and the Soviets by using the party as a mechanism of control. There was still one other pillar of the old order that I haven't really talked about, though, the Russian Orthodox Church. I mentioned them months ago as a component of the old autocracy, and how it had been allowed to atrophy to the point where it wasn't nearly the active defender of traditionalism in Russia that it could have been. That's also why I haven't mentioned them a whole lot. While individual figures were active trying to sway minds this way or that during World War I and after the February Revolution, the church was in no shape to push an agenda during Russia's liberalizing period. And when the October Revolution hit, Social fragmentation had gotten to the point where that was even less so. That all being said, the Bolsheviks were not about to give them a chance to regroup, as the church was by default hostile to the communists. On January 23, 1918, the decree on the separation of church and state was implemented, which gave the right to practice religion freely or not practice it at all. Religious schools were taken over by the state, religious imagery was removed from public spaces, and processions were allowed only by the consent of the local Soviet. Religious obligations could not be used to avoid civic obligations, and the church could no longer possess its own property. That last part was big, as communities added another windfall of land to what they had gained earlier in the revolution. Finally, all matters of registration, such as births, deaths, marriages, all of those were transferred to local Soviet control. The head of the Russian Orthodox Church at the time was Patriarch Tikhon, although he had taken that title only recently. The Russian Patriarchate had existed for close to 130 years before Peter the Great decided he didn't need such an exalted religious servant and dropped the head of the Russian Church down to Metropolitan. Around the same time the October Revolution was occurring, leaders in the Orthodox Church got together and decided to revive the Patriarchate, seeing as how the Tsars weren't around anymore. In early December 1917, Tikhon became the first Russian patriarch since 1721. He got the job at a distinctly bad time, and after the decree of separation, he announced an anathema on the Bolsheviks in late January 1918. Which is to say, they were separate and at odds with the church and all its good-minded followers. It didn't really accomplish a lot. The Bolsheviks carried on their confiscations of church lands, with the old monasteries being a prime target for land-hungry peasants. Digon was sure to emphasize to his flock that they were to resist the new regime only in a peaceful capacity, but where they could, 
the members of the clergy sided with the whites in the Civil War. You can hardly blame them. The Bolsheviks portrayed the church as reactionaries, parasites, spiritual snake oil salesmen, and drunks, which that last part was sadly true for a lot of parish priests. The church in turn spread the message that the Reds were in the thrall of Germans, Jews, Masons, and whose obsession with material conditions on earth would lead them to damnation in the next world. So yeah, there was some tension between the two. However, most of the actual oppression, usually at the hands of the Cheka or Red Army, would occur only when the members of the church decided to directly oppose the new decree. The resistance to the reforms, which to be fair were ones that most of Europe had already instituted a long time before, would provoke crackdowns, which led to arrests and even executions, although the numbers are disputed, with some putting the number of clergy killed in 1918 and 1919 at under 1,000, while others put it closer to 5,000. One notable example was the Cheka drowning the Archbishop of Perm when he didn't want to play ball. Where the church cooperated, there were fewer issues, and for a lot of local parishes, things didn't really change. Parish priests were mostly dependent on their communities for financial support already, so the parts of the church that lost out the most were the higher echelons, which also meant that while the party line in 1918 and beyond was openly anti-religious, the drive to really push that on the populace wasn't quite there yet. There were more important problems on deck, and once the church had been stripped of its visibility and influence in public life, it was seen as much less a threat. So by spring 1920, the Bolshevik government had managed to fitfully establish itself. Its successes were mostly due to their not being a properly organized internal opposition and also to the military failure of the whites. But all the foreign observers who said the whole thing would fall apart after a year were proven dead wrong. Although I can't call war communism a success, because it definitely wasn't. And by the end of 1920, there came to be fierce debates within the Bolshevik ranks over whether to continue the ad hoc measures of control that had so defined them for the better part of three years. Not uncoincidentally, this debate was parallel with the ending of the whites as an existential threat, which means we are starting to see the light at the end of the Civil War tunnel. But before I press on and wrap up the last few loose ends of the Civil War, there is still one big topic happening away from the battlefields that I want to cover. Namely, we need to talk about the terror. And I'm not just talking about the efforts of the Cheka, although they are a big part of it, but also the campaigns by the whites to take revenge on their enemies, both real and imagined. If you felt that so far the conflict has been too cut and dry, too clean, well, next week is for you. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.